You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans? And that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world. How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Be in on the plot or don't be in the hallway. What would you endure to save your family? Could you willingly walk into the gilded cage of a madman? A man who had your father poisoned, your mother exiled and starved to death. A man on whose watch your two older brothers were unjustly imprisoned, starved, and forced to suicide. No matter what the old man throws at you, what tortures, what depravities, what debilitating madness, could you betray no emotion? Could you hide your pain and terror every time he calls you to his chambers? Could you hide your hope every time there is news from Rome? And there will be so much thrown at you, so much horror and perversion, enough to break the strongest. Sometimes you'll wonder how you survived, or why. And then you'll remember, your family. Everything you are enduring is to secure a place for them, to secure their future. You remain stony-faced, stoic, But you watch and you wait, because if you can outlast the old man, if you can hold on just a little bit longer, then you can have everything you've ever dreamt of. You can have the world. And then, when you're in control, your family will finally be safe. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. This week, we're returning to the ancient world Stark family saga. And if you haven't listened to the first episode in this series yet, Germanicus the Manicus, we recommend that you do that because it lays the foundation for everything we're talking about this week. And also, why would you not want to listen to that episode? It's a great episode. Oh, our blue-eyed prince. Oh, Germanicus. Our blue-eyed prince! Our golden god! Oh, no! (laughs) And also, it was probably a lighter episode than this episode is going to be. I mean, pretty much everything we've done has been a lighter episode than this episode, so just warning you. 
So in our last episode, we left the family of Germanicus in a very dark place. Germanicus was dead, poisoned. His wife Agrippina was dead, beaten and starved while in exile. Their oldest boys, Nero and Drusus, were also dead, forced suicide and starvation. All that was left of this once proud and sprawling family were the four youngest children, Caligula, Agrippina the Younger, Julia Drusilla, and Julia Lavilla. All of this happened by 33 AD, but we've got to backtrack a few years to set the stage for the events that would define the reign of Caligula and the downfall of the family of Germanicus. Four years before Agrippina the Elder's death, when she was sent into exile and things really began to unravel in 29 AD, the four youngest children of Germanicus were sent into the care of their grandmother, Antonia Minor. And while there's not much known about this time period in their lives, there are some interesting things we can infer. Antonia Minor was unmarried, and her lifestyle was uncommon for a woman in the Roman Empire. She entertained visiting diplomats and philosophers, and her home was kind of an ancient world literary salon. If we're sticking with the Game of Thrones metaphors, which we are definitely doing throughout this entire podcast, then she's the Olena Tyrell, the badass grandmother of this story. Antonia did not care for the orders of other people, and she did not suffer fools. After her husband, Germanicus's father, died, she refused to remarry, no matter how much her uncle, Emperor Augustus, pressured her. That required some level of diplomacy to not wind up in exile. Instead, Antonia raised her children and then her grandchildren alone in Rome and continued to live her best life. Even though they were living in Antonia Minor's house, the fates of these children were entirely under the control of Tiberius. The first one to suffer the consequences of this was the oldest daughter, Agrippina the Younger. Around the time of her mother's exile, she was 13, time to be married off. She reminds me a lot of Sansa Stark in Game of Thrones, but much more cunning from the start. Agrippina is described by the ancient sources as very beautiful, ruthless, and ambitious. Her childhood had been a happy one until the death of her father. Then everything became uncertain. On Tiberius's orders, Agrippina was married to her paternal first cousin once removed, Gnaeus Domitius Ahenobarbus. Domitius was about 32 years old at the time. Uh, remember guys, Agrippina was 13, and the age difference wasn't the only thing that made this marriage a giant tire fire. Suetonius tells us this about him. Ahenobarbus was, quote, a man hateful in every walk of life. He slew one of his own freedmen for refusing to drink as much as he ordered. He lived not a whit less lawlessly. On the contrary, in a village on the Appian Way, suddenly whipping up his team, he purposely ran over and killed a boy. And right in the Roman Forum, he gouged out the eye of a Roman knight for being too outspoken in chiding him. He was moreover so dishonest that he not only cheated some bankers of the prices of wares which he had bought, but in his praetorship, he even defrauded the victors in the chariot races of the amount of their prizes. So this was the man that Tiberius chose to marry his 13-year-old niece to. Uh, eyeball gouging, hit and run, boy killing, chariot race cheating. Forced binge drinking. Right. Total chode bag who played really crappy drinking games. Not okay. Not okay. And also she was 13 and he was, I don't know what, 30 something? 32, and he was exceptionally violent. So this is what happened. Creepy Uncle Tiberius married his 13-year-old niece to this guy. It's not hard to imagine the fear Agrippina must have felt. She couldn't refuse this marriage, and the rumors of Domitius's behavior were rampant in every circle of Rome. So at the age of 13, she was plucked from the relative safety of her grandmother's care and given over to one of the most hateful men in Rome. In our last episode, we discussed the plot that the Praetorian prefect Sejanus orchestrated to gain power and add himself into the succession for the throne. 
This plot was ultimately foiled by Antonio, but the resolution came too late for three members in the family of Germanicus, who were exiled and then murdered as a result of Sejanus's plotting. This was a major undercurrent that shaped the lives of the surviving siblings who were being cared for by their grandmother. And maybe their grandmother didn't give these kids quite as much attention as she should have, because it's during this time that we get our first rumor of incest between Caligula and his sisters, particularly his sister Drusilla. Suetonius tells us that while Drusilla and Caligula were under the care of their grandmother and still minors, Caligula quote-unquote violated Drusilla. He doesn't tell us how old Drusilla was or when this happened, but he said she was still a minor, and this is the ancient world, and that must have been very young, maybe as young as 10. When were these girls minors? I mean, they were marrying them off at 14 average. Like, 14 wasn't even the youngest they got married off. No, exactly. So it's tough to know exactly when this happened, or if it really did, but it theoretically happened before Caligula was summoned to Capri by his uncle in 31 AD. In 31 AD, maybe at the suggestion of his grandmother after she found Caligula and Drusilla in bed together, and maybe totally unrelated, the 19-year-old Caligula was quote-unquote invited to visit his uncle Tiberius in Capri. And this wasn't the kind of invitation that Caligula could refuse, so just like that, the family was fractured again. Caligula packed his bags for Capri, leaving his two younger sisters alone in Rome with their grandmother. And Caligula must have been terrified. Tiberius was the man who ordered the exile of Caligula's mother and older brothers, and now he was calling for a meeting on his private island. I know I'd be pretty scared. I mean, I'd be terrified! Right. It's creepy Uncle Tiberius. And he's really creepy. We'll get to it. But Tiberius was actually summoning Caligula to Capri to test out the young man and see if he would make a good heir. Because... Tiberius had an heir problem. His heirs kept dying. And, you know, it's possibly because he had them killed, but there were so many rumors about what Tiberius got up to on his pleasure island. The Neverland Ranch is what it is. Yeah. According to Dynasty by Tom Holland, Tiberius's estate at Capri was a sprawling compound that he transformed into a mini Mount Olympus. It had 12 separate villas spread across the island, with some on cliffs and some in caves, in an elaborate homage to the Olympian gods. And the things Tiberius got up to on that compound were really dark. Here's your warning. From here on out, we're going to get into some serious, serious stuff. Murder, pedophilia, incest, rape, torture, and child abuse. And I think that one of the things we really ought to say here is that we make a big effort not to sugarcoat the stories that we tell. So most of our episodes do deal with a lot of violence, a lot of sexual assault, a lot of heavy stuff like that. But this one is especially egregious in the area of pedophilia and incest and sexual assault. So this is just your your heads up for that. If you know that's really going to keep you up at night, you might want to skip this one and we'll try and give you a heads up before the really egregious stuff happens so that you can just turn the volume down if you want to do that. Yeah, and this is really not an episode if you listen to us with small children around to listen to us with small children around because, yeah, it's really dark. Because creepy Uncle Tiberius was really enjoying himself on Capri and his enjoyment of life in his later years was all about making other people miserable. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Tiberius had retired from Rome in 26 AD and was ruling by proxy from Capri. He kept order in Rome by relying on fear, his Praetorian guards, and treason trials in the Senate. But while all that was happening, Tiberius was having the time of his life in Capri, and if we're sticking with the Game of Thrones metaphors, which we are, the character you might want to liken him to is the Mad King. Creepy Uncle Tiberius is super fascinating, because if you just look at the early years of his reign, he wasn't that bad an emperor. He was actually a reluctant emperor, who only became a ruler as a last resort. And he left a decent amount of money in the imperial coffers. But Tiberius's latter years were when things really spiraled out of control. Ancient sources tell us that Tiberius was into some perverted things. But the problem is that when ancient sources want to discredit someone, they accuse them of some pretty heinous sexual acts. Tiberius was despised towards the end of his reign, so it could be that he wasn't as depraved as the sources suggest. But as the ancient sources are what have remained, that's where we've drawn the research from. And to be honest, they're all unanimous that Tiberius was a perverted old man. The mythological Neverland Ranch that Caligula was about to enter was like something out of Eyes Wide Shut, only a lot grosser. The always salacious Suetonius tells us this about Capri and Tiberius. Quote, On retiring to Capri, Tiberius devised a plaisance for his secret orgies. Teams of wantons of both sexes, selected as experts in deviant intercourse and dubbed analysts, copulated before him in triple unions to excite his flagging passions. Its bedrooms were furnished with the most salacious paintings and sculptures, as well as with an erotic library in case a performer should need an illustration of what was required. Then, in Capri's woods and groves, he arranged a number of nooks of venery, where boys and girls got up as pans and nymphs and solicited outside bowers and grottos. People openly called this the Old Goat's Garden. This is going to get really gross, and you will never be able to unhear this paragraph that we're about to read you. He acquired a reputation for still grosser depravities that one can hardly bear to tell or be told, let alone believe. For example, he trained little boys. This is so gross. I apologize. He trained little boys whom he termed tiddlers to crawl between his thighs when he went swimming and tease him with their licks and nibbles. Unweaned babies he would put to his organ as though to the breast, being by both nature and age rather fond of this form of satisfaction. That is the actual grossest paragraph I've ever read in my life. And now you know why we call him Creepy Uncle Tiberius. This is hands down the most disgusting thing I've come across in any of my research so far in the ancient world. 
I didn't want to include it, but then I kind of thought we needed to see this. Yeah, because I think that we need to know what kind of situation Caligula was walking into, and it says a lot about who he becomes later. So we had to include it, but that means that we had to read it and you had to listen to it. Sorry. And it's going to stick with you for the rest of your life, and we're sorry. I can't unread that paragraph. You can't unhear it. This is why we gave you a warning. Yeah. And if you've been listening, you know that's saying a lot. That's <laughs> saying a whole lot. There has been so much disgusting crap in this podcast. The ancient world was not for the faint of heart. No, it wasn't. So not only was creepy Uncle Tiberius rumored to be sexually depraved, there are also accounts of him having people flung from the rocky cliffs of Capri if they displeased him. And if you didn't know it, the cliffs of Capri are really high. We'll put some photos in the show notes so you can see it. If by some miracle the victims survived the fall, there were guards in boats at the bottom to beat people back from the shore. Yeah, don't mess with Tiberius. Tiberius was incredibly superstitious and believed in fortune tellers and oracles and was in the habit of throwing them off cliffs if their predictions came out wrong or he thought they were charlatans or maybe just didn't like their face. There are so many things that could have gotten you thrown off the cliffs in Capri and one of them is having your fortune come out wrong. Or Tiberius was just in a bad mood that day. Totally. And remember, like, at this point in time, he's a septuagenarian. He's 70 years old. Like, so, so he's in a bad mood a lot. Is that what you're saying? I think so. I don't think he was particularly well. He's not the happiest puppy. To back up our uh, throwing fortune tellers off cliffs, Jenny, there's a famous story about how Tiberius had the astrologer Thrasyllus audition for the role of his personal astrologer by predicting his own fate. Thrasyllus accurately predicted that Tiberius was planning to throw him off a cliff, which, as we've already discussed, he was. He did it a lot. Tiberius was so impressed that he hired Thrasyllus on the spot. Tiberius was also obsessed with mythological wonders of the world, like mermen and monstrous creatures. And that's totally something I can get behind. You have things in common with Tiberius, aren't you happy? <sighs> Maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> In Dynasty, Tom Holland talks about how Tiberius purchased what he believed was the tooth of a huge quote-unquote hero, which hero is lost now to history, which was actually the tooth of a mammoth or a mastodon. Why did I include this, guys? It's because I just wanted to hammer home how much Tiberius loved mythology and how easy it was to trick him. Can you imagine being the like guy who goes island to island selling hero and monster memorabilia and selling it to the emperor? hero teeth. I think that's a really common thing throughout the ancient world, though. I mean, Germanicus was really credulous when it came to signs importance and stuff. Oh, totally. And I think it's just one of those things that you forget. You think like, oh, all these emperors and all these rulers were like somehow incredibly smart and above all this. And actually, you've got Tiberius. He's like, let me buy that monster tooth off you, you know? Well, I think that in the absence of scientific discoveries that we know about today, when stuff happened and you're trying to have a sense of control over your environment, I think it's really easy to cling to this stuff. Totally. And also these stories are a great way to explain things like fossils before we had any idea what fossils were. It does make sense. I mean, I don't think that they were just idiots. I think they were just, you know, dealing with a different a different understanding of the world than we have today. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think, I mean, we all know I'm a massive mythology nerd and I totally would have bought one of those teeth or several of them. I would love to have a mastodon tooth in my house. I actually do. My husband has a petrified tooth of a sea serpent. Hold up, what sea serpent? I don't know. It's some sea monster-y thing. I mean, that's very general. <laughs> now, Okay, now I'm starting to think you have something in common with creepy Uncle Tiberius. Anyway, 
Tiberius also loved to get even with his political enemies, and here's another warning about pedophilia. By having the children of high-ranking senators sent to his island to enact graphic scenes from mythology and engage in sex acts for the emperor's pleasure, and this included Caligula. Ancient sources recount that Caligula enjoyed dressing up and playing these games, while more modern sources wonder how much of this Caligula actually enjoyed and how much he was pretending to enjoy so his uncle would not throw him off a cliff. Which, let's be honest, self-preservation. You kind of can't blame him in that situation. So this is how Caligula lived for six years, and it's not hard to imagine what psychological damage a place like this would do to someone. These years were very dangerous for Caligula. If he tipped off the old man's threat perception in any way, he could get tossed off the cliffs or killed in any number of other violent ways. It all depended on how the old man was feeling that day. Tiberius had already openly done this to his mom and two older brothers and possibly had his dad poisoned, all for being perceived threats to Tiberius's rule. But Caligula was a survivor. He had watched his brothers and mother stand up to the emperor, and he had seen how far that gotten them. Spoiler, dead. <laughs> we, we're not going to rehash it, guys. Go back to Germanicus the Manicus. Oh. We rehashed in the first paragraph or two. That's enough rehashing. He was determined to outlast the old man, and he was a consummate actor. He knew if he could win this game, he could come out with a completely secure position in the empire for himself and his family. So he played whatever part necessary to survive. Tiberius even remarked that Caligula remained stone cold and betrayed no emotions when he heard the news about the death of his mother and brothers. Tiberius was pleased by this reaction and joked that, and this is a quote from Suetonius, I am nursing a viper for the Roman people, a phaeton for the whole world. What's a phaeton? I thought you were going to ask me that. So phaeton was the son of Helios, who's the guy who got to drive the sun across the sky. He grew up with a single mother, much respect to her, and the kids around him were all teasing him. They're like, who's your daddy, phaeton? Like, where's your dad? And he went home crying to his mom, and his mom's like, your dad is the sun. And phaeton was like, uh-huh, yeah, mom, thanks. She's like, no, seriously. Isn't that just like in the ancient world, this is what women would say if they wound up having a child out of wedlock? I mean, and there were some very dramatic ways in which you could be impregnated by a god shaft of light a swan i mean do swans even have penises oh swans definitely have penises we're gonna move on from the swan penis because we don't need to derail in mythological horrors this episode is bad enough <laughs> it is bad <laughs> enough so phaeton's mother took phaeton to meet his father who was helios or apollo the god of the sun and the dad was like hey you've grown up pretty decent i didn't have a lot to do with that and uh, i think you're a great kid i'll grant you sort of like one request and he's like i've got a big one i want to drive the sun across the guy in your chariot and his dad not really thinking about this very much and how that would work was like sure here are the keys go don't see how this could go wrong <laughs> phaeton was like i'm gonna show everyone that i am the son of a god so he starts driving the sun across the sky and he's maybe driving it a little bit too close to the earth and the horses maybe don't respect him enough and it all just quickly goes off the rails and turns into a big old nightmare that Zeus has to step in and Phaeton burns out and dies and no one else gets to drive the sun cart anymore. <laughs> this is it? Nobody gets the keys to the sun cart? 
<laughs> this is it. It's only Helios <laughs> or Apollo. I'll call Helios up. Helios, I have to move. Can I borrow your sun chariot? Helios is like, no, don't care. Helios is like, look, I, I, I let one person do it once and I almost killed the world. Not again. Yeah, I'm busy every single weekend that you're moving. You do not get to borrow the sun chariot. Look, the horses only respond to me. They don't respond to you. And uh, they will crash this fucker into the sea. Don't even ask. It's not going to happen. What Tiberius was saying in this roundabout mythological reference was he was raising this golden prince who was going to eventually be the ruination of Rome. I just love that this quote has to do with a convoluted mythological story that the Roman people would have known, but it's totally unnecessary. Like he's raising a viper and a Phaeton. One is enough, Tiberius. Right, but Phaeton wasn't like on purpose though. Phaeton was kind of just a doofus who couldn't drive. I think Phaeton, what makes me so sad about him is he kind of just wanted that love and acceptance of his father and the people around him. And in trying to get that love and acceptance, he makes a huge mess. Yeah, so I'm just kind of wondering if Tiberius is really making a comment about Caligula and how he wants approval or something. Maybe it's about his driving skills. Maybe, but I think you might be right. Maybe it is a bit more incisive. Maybe it's about the fact that, like, I'm raising this new ruler for you who is going to do everything he can to get your love and get your acceptance and also screw things up. He's probably going to crash the Roman Empire into the sea. And, you know, Tiberius was not 100% wrong in that uh, assessment, but who knows if he said it because Suetonius was not contemporary to Tiberius. This could just be a historical look back. I mean, if Suetonius isn't right, then this entire podcast isn't right. (laughs) Well, I mean, Suetonius is right, but who knows if Tiberius said a Phaeton, you know. There's a whole lot in that one comment to unpack. There is, which I think we've done. So interestingly enough, as astute as Tiberius was, he maybe didn't know everything in Caligula's dark, dark heart because Caligula himself told a story about how he tried to kill Tiberius with a knife at one point during his stay in Capri to take revenge for his family. But he lost his nerve at the last minute and instead he threw the knife on the floor. Supposedly, Tiberius knew about it but never said anything about it. And I have some doubts about him actually doing this because, first off, what was his game plan? If he killed Tiberius, what was going to happen next? There would be no way that he could go in there on his own kill Tiberius, get covered in blood from slitting his throat or stabbing him through the chest or whatever he's going to do, and still somehow become emperor. So there's a part of me that's like, well, after all the deaths of all his family, sure, he'd be so upset and so enraged that he would do that. But there's another part of me that's like, he's endured so much abuse and so much horror. If he goes and kills the emperor, then what was it all for? I think the point is what happens afterwards. I mean, he can't just go in and stab Tiberius and then expect to live through that. It's kind of a suicide mission, isn't it? If you're going to kill the emperor, the best way to do that is surreptitiously, like with poison or in some way that makes it look natural. Like the guy is 70. Why would you stab him? Just put a pillow over his head. There is another story about Caligula killing Tiberius that does ring true, which is that he smothered him when he actually did die. And that I do believe. And we'll get to that in a minute. So Caligula spent six years at the worst pedophilia swingers party ever, and I can't believe I even had to say that sentence. Pedophilia swingers party. This is terrible. All he had to do during that time was survive Tiberius' shifting moods, his well-known penchant for violence, and his preference for underage sex, and outlast the old man. 
and he succeeded. During the course of Caligula's stay at the Neverland Ranch, not only did he manage not to get killed, but he was made joint heir of the empire with his cousin Gemellus. And about halfway through that, in 33 AD, three years or so into Caligula's stay, Tiberius married off the three unmarried Germanicus siblings in a whirlwind of weddings. Caligula, now 21, was married to Junia Claudilla, the daughter of powerful senator Marcus Junius Solanus. Caligula actually got along pretty well with his first wife, and he also formed a friendship and mentorship with Junia's father, Solanus. The next to get married was 17-year-old Julia Drusilla. She was married to Tiberius's close friend Longinus, who was 47 years old at the time. And unsurprisingly, this was not a love match. Oh, shocker. There's not a lot known about this marriage or this time in Julia Drusilla's life, except that she was so unhappy that when her brother became emperor, one of the first things he did was order that she divorce her husband. It's not hard to understand why she would have been so unhappy. She was 17 and he was nearly 50. Yeah, and finally, the baby of the family, Julia Lavilla, age 15, was married to 38-year-old Marcus Vincius. Tacitus describes Marcus Vincius as, quote, mild in character and an elaborate orator, which I guess is better than gouging out somebody's eyeball in the forum. Tiberius had actually asked Vincius to defend Piso in the trial he'd planned for Germanicus's death, remember that? But Vincius had refused. So, of the three sisters, Lavilla wound up with possibly the most decent of the male suitors, but he was still 23 years her senior, so this isn't saying much. The bar is super low. So low that it might just be on the ground. So, after getting married, during Caligula's Neverland Ranch years, the sisters disappear from the story for a while. The book Agrippina, Empress Exile Hustler Whore by Emma Southen sheds some light on why. One reason Caligula's sisters disappear may be because they were navigating the dangerous waters of Rome, and all of them were doing their best to fly under the radar. While Tiberius was alive, no one was safe, and all of the sisters knew how quickly things could turn bad for their family. Also, let's not forget that the ancient Romans took a cue from the ancient Greeks in their perception of women. Good Roman women were meant to be in the home, not heard, and only seen when deemed appropriate. I mean, I think we should be a little bit careful here because ancient Rome wasn't as bad as ancient Greece. Women were entirely meant to be completely out of public life the way that they were in ancient Greece, but there was a lot of cultural crossover there. So, And also, all the ancient sources during this time were a lot more interested in politics and the men who drove those politics. And that means that women's stories get sidelined a lot unless they are directly involved in a more powerful male narrative. And this is a problem that we've run into a lot in researching this podcast, I think both of us have. The only real story from this time about one of the sisters is a court case where Agrippina's husband, Domitius, is charged with committing incest with his younger sister, Domitia Lepida, which I guess sounds a character for this guy. These charges could have been politically motivated because they came from Caligula's friend, the Praetorian prefect Macro. They could have been a way to discredit Domitius, who was also a contender for the throne for a while, and ensure that Caligula's future claim was secure. And he was a contender for the throne because everyone was related. So he was now married to Agrippina, who was the daughter of Germanicus, but who was also related to Tiberius because this family tree is a circle. Just assume that every person whose name comes up is related somehow, and don't worry too much over how, because it's just going to give you a giant headache. But I do think it is worth pointing out that they are cousins. Cousins-in-law, cousins removed. But also cousins by blood. Like Agrippina and Domitius were also related, let's be clear. Yes. While Caligula's sisters were married and living their not-so-awesome lives in Rome, Caligula remained in Capri with his wife and father-in-law. Despite the pretty much hostage situation he was in, 
He'd been learning a lot from his dear old uncle, mostly how to manipulate people, how to craft the perfect poker face, and how to inflict the most harm on a person. Caligula and his wife, Julia Claudilla, had more or less a happy relationship. But a year after their marriage, she died in childbirth, along with their baby. Caligula remained close with his father-in-law, relying on him as an advisor and mentor. This was crucial for Caligula, who had been away from Rome for years. Solanus was the guy who had his finger on the pulse of what was going on back in the capital. If Tiberius ever died and Caligula succeeded him as emperor, Solanus was the guy who would be able to steer him through the rough waters of the Senate. Caligula also made friends with the Praetorian prefect Macro. This friendship would give him the support of the ever-important Praetorians if he did wind up on the throne. I feel like the last few years he was on Capri, Caligula was like, I'm going to make all of the connections now. Well, I think it was a survival mechanism, you know? Yeah, but I also think it went further than that. I think at this point he was like setting up his dominoes for when the old man kicked it. Right. Now all Caligula needed was for his uncle to die. But the 77-year-old Tiberius showed no signs of slowing down. And as long as his uncle was alive, he would continue to manipulate both Caligula and his cousin Gemellus, playing mind games, telling them that they were both joiners, and sometimes letting it slip that he could change his mind in an instant. This reminds me of the dread pirate Robert saying to Wesley, Good night, Wesley. Good work. Sleep well. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. I imagine a lot of those comments came out of Tiberius's mouth during those six years. Totally. I mean, he was very much playing the two of them against each other. They could have teamed up and been like a super unit who were like, no dice, Tiberius, we're not playing your games. But it doesn't seem like that's what happened for them. It seemed like they really turned against each other. I think they were both trying to survive. And the problem is that when you're joint heirs, one of you could turn on the other in a second. We've seen that happen a lot when there have been joint heirs. (coughs) Caracalla. Caracalla, right looking at you disapprovingly (laughs) (laughs) disapprovingly looking at disapproving caracalla (laughs) so sometime in late 36 or early 37 ad about six years into caligula's captivity tiberius decided it was time to end his self-imposed exile and go back to rome according to tom holland's dynasty the rise and fall of the caesars tiberius had tried a few times to return to rome during his 11-year vacation but each time he couldn't bring himself to cross into the city it's unclear why this happened, perhaps because he kept seeing bad signs and portents that kept the highly superstitious emperor from entering his own city, or perhaps his health took a bad turn and he had to be rushed to more favorable climes. I think Tiberius just didn't want to go back to Rome. But also, like, Jenny, it's like when you were on a road trip with your parents and your dad is like, or your mom, whoever's driving, was like, look, if you don't stop right now with all your nonsense, I'm going to turn the car right back around and go to Capri. And I feel like Tiberius was definitely the guy driving. And Caligula was like, yes, finally, I'm going to get to go back to Rome and see what's been going on. He's like, if you say one more word about going back to Rome, Caligula, that's it. We are turning this whole 200 plus wagon train of people around. We're going back to Capri. You hear me, Caligula? Don't even look at me. Don't look twice. No, no. I just imagine Gamellus and Caligula being in the backseat and one of them going, Caligula going, he's on my side, Uncle Tiberius. He's poking me. I know you can totally see Tiberius being like, boys, knock it off or we're going straight back to Capri. All the way back to Neverland Ranch. And I'll tell you what, I'm not even going to tell you which one I'm going to throw off the cliffs first. I have to pee. (laughs) That's it, Gamellus. You've ruined the empire. You should be so proud of yourself. So proud. We are turning this situation right around and driving straight into the sea. 
So according to Tom Holland, this time when an earthquake toppled a huge lighthouse standing on a cliff in the Bay of Naples, Tiberius took that as a sign his days were numbered. And Tiberius was close to 80 at this point. I guess he wasn't feeling that well. And he just decided, well, I guess this lighthouse fell. I guess that means I'm going to die. You can't get much more of important than this great lighthouse, this beacon of light and goodness in the world has fallen. That's a sign that I'm going to fall and Rome will be dashed on the rocks of history. I mean, Tiberius, it's not always all about you. It's all about you, Tiberius. We know this. We know. (laughs) Anyway, so Tiberius amended his will so that both Caligula and his cousin Gemellus were clearly spelled out to be joint heirs. I guess he hadn't officially done that yet. I think he went back and forth quite a lot with it. And Tiberius might have seen through Caligula's careful mask a little better than you'd think because according to Tacitus, he told Caligula, quote, you will kill him and then someone else will kill you. I mean, I feel like that's just super controlling. It's like Uncle Tiberius, when you're dead, you don't get a say in who I kill. The thing with Tiberius is there was definitely some mind games that had echoes through Caligula's reign. There's so much I feel like Caligula is pulling a phaeton and trying to prove Tiberius wrong. Moving on. On the 16th of March, 27 AD, 78-year-old Tiberius died in Naples while on his final attempt to return to Rome. According to Dynasty, Tiberius was clutching his signet ring, the symbol of the emperor, till the bitter end, very reluctant to hand over the rule of Rome to his young heirs. In fact, Caligula, believing his uncle had died, took the ring out of his uncle's hand. And then, just as Caligula was being crowned emperor in the next room, Tiberius woke up, tried to call for help, but no one came. So Tiberius got out of bed and then collapsed and died on the floor. To me, there's just something really haunting about that image, and that's why I included it. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, not that Tiberius is somebody that you particularly want to empathize with, but putting yourself into his shoes and just thinking, okay, you're on your deathbed, you wake up, you find you're still alive, and they're already crowning the new emperor in the next room that is so haunting it's so haunting and once again tiberius is such a portent of things to come although some accounts say that macro smothered tiberius with his bedclothes on caligula's orders and others claim that caligula had him poisoned Whichever account you want to believe, Tiberius met his end in Naples on the 16th of March, while in the next room, the reign of Caligula had just begun. He was 25 years old. Caligula made it very clear to his cousin that he would be emperor, and Gemellus, still a teenager, would be his heir. And this goes against Tiberius's will, which said that Gemellus and Caligula would rule jointly. If Gemellus disagreed, he stayed pretty quiet, probably biding his time to get the proper support to back his claim, because Gemellus wasn't really in a position to object. No, and he hadn't been doing the things that Caligula had been doing in Capri. He hadn't been making besties with the Praetorian Guard, and he hadn't been courting senators from afar. Right, Caligula was really laying his groundwork for power-taking, which is pretty smart of him. Caligula returned to Rome as a golden god, the only surviving son of Germanicus, the general and ancient world superhero who the people still loved. He was also a direct descendant of the great Augustus. Caligula was the light at the end of the very long 22-year tunnel that had been Tiberius's reign. He was also reunited with his sisters and grandmother for the first time in years, and the family of Germanicus was about to claim the spotlight and the affection of the Roman public again. See, the people hated Tiberius. His last few years had been a bad trip for the Roman people, especially the aristocracy. As we mentioned earlier, Tiberius had no respect for the senators or the upper classes. He regularly had their children recalled to the Capri Neverland Ranch to take part in his sex games. He also was famous for his treason trials, where he accused anyone of treason if they said anything about him that he didn't like. Don't like Tiberius's tax hike and moaned about it to your mate? 
Treason. Don't like that the Emperor is hiding out in Capri and wonder what his deal is. Treason! You can see how this would upset people. He was also pretty stingy and didn't throw lavish games and parties for the common people. When Tiberius passed away, there is a famous quote from Suetonius, quote, to the Tiber with Tiberius, that pretty much sums up the public mood. Caligula didn't actually have to do a lot to make the people love him. Pretty much not being Tiberius was a huge step up. But... Caligula wanted to be more than just a step up. He wanted to live up to the hype, and he was very good at optics. Caligula made a massive show of being not Tiberius. He told the senators and patricians that the purges and treason trials were over. He made a big public show of burning the treason trial records that Tiberius had kept. He also swore that he hadn't even read or looked at these records, not even a peek. He also made a massive show of going to the islands of Pontia and Pandateria to recover the bones of his mother and brother Nero so that they could properly be buried in the family tomb in Rome. I guess they were just kind of lying out over there on the beach or something. Yeah, they would have been. They were not given a proper burial because they were exiles. They had committed treason against Tiberius. So this would have been Caligula's Teutoburg Forest moment. Yeah, this would be setting the ghosts of the past to rest properly. Right, and also healing a psychic wound in the minds of Roman citizens that these beloved people had been treated this way. Absolutely. I mean, these people, we talked about them in the Germanicus, the Manicus episode, they were kind of like the British royal family. So the people were not happy that Tiberius had exiled them. And then when they died in exile, he didn't give them the proper honors that they were, they deserved. So this would have been really significant, both for Caligula personally, I'm sure, but also for the public. Caligula gave out money to the poor in a spectacular fashion by throwing coins from his balcony. And the sources also tell us that over 160,000 animals died during the first three months of Caligula's reign in lavish games and religious sacrifices, where people prayed for the emperor's long life and reign. They wanted him to live forever. The first seven months of Caligula's reign were an epic party. Everyone was loving this new emperor. He was giving people what they wanted. Lots of food and games and reasons to rejoice now that the hated Tiberius was gone. He was giving the Senate and the aristocracy a clean slate. He was the hope and change that Rome needed. And Caligula was happy. All of his life he'd lived in this terrible fear. After the death of his father, he'd lost his mother and two brothers. He'd lived for years with his creepy uncle Tiberius. He'd watched his sisters be married away to men who were less than desirable mates. And he had been denied the right to object to those marriages because he was kept a ward of his uncle, officially a minor, into his 20s. Even though most Roman males entered their majority at 15. Now, at last, the remaining family of Germanicus were on top. They were safe. They were the apex predator. They were the sharks, and the sharks had to keep swimming. Caligula's first steps as emperor, as well as reassuring the shell-shocked senators and throwing parties for the public, involved honoring his family and making sure that his living family members would always be protected. He renamed the month of September Germanicus after his father. He had the Senate give his grandmother, Antonia, all of the same honors that Lavilla Drusilla, the wife of Augustus, had been granted in her lifetime, including the title of Augusta. And this is important. Essentially, Caligula gave his grandmother similar rights to the Empress of Rome. He was basically giving her dowager empress status. I would say that it's also important because at this point in time, Caligula's unmarried. So he's giving his grandmother like queen dowager status, which had never been done before. Antonia, being a real 
really shrewd woman who had been playing this Game of Thrones for a long time at this point, rejected the title as a public act of humility, but remained as an advisor to Caligula during the first few months of his reign. Caligula had his uncle Claudius, the family black sheep and frequent laughingstock, share a consulship with him, and Claudius had a disability. He had mostly been kept sidelined and out of the public spotlight, which is probably why he was still alive, and this was the first time anyone had given Claudius any real power in his life. Caligula formally adopted Gemellus as his heir, making a show of how he absolutely, definitely, 100% was not going to have his cousin killed, for reals. Like, seriously, would you all just chill out? Everything is fine. We're friends. And finally, Caligula got to work honoring his sisters. He started by having them included by name in all oaths of allegiance. These were the oaths sworn by every citizen, soldier, and senator when a new emperor took the throne. They went like this from Suetonius, quote, and I will not hold myself and my children dearer than I do Gaius and his sisters. Gaius is Caligula's real name. Yes, Gaius is Caligula's real name. And these oaths would be kind of like if you grew up in America, when you would pledge allegiance to the flag in homeroom. Essentially, you are now pledging allegiance not to your nation and your state, but to your emperor and his sisters. To say that this was unprecedented is putting it mildly. Caligula was making every citizen and soldier in the empire swear to uphold the safety and security of his sisters before their own families. It shows how committed Caligula was to keeping his sisters safe. He also ordered the divorce of his favorite sister, Drusilla, from her first husband, Longinus. She was extremely unhappy in this union, and Caligula remarried her to a close friend of his, Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, who was also rumored to be Caligula's lover. This made Lepidus a possible candidate for succession. No word on whether this was a happy marriage for Drusilla, but we're hoping it was at least a step up from her first marriage. Caligula also had his sister's images engraved on the backs of coins. He depicted his three sisters as the goddesses Concordia, Drusilla, Fortuna, Lavilla, and Securitas, Agrippina. This was the first time a living woman was included on a Roman coin. According to Emma Southern, Caligula, quote, wanted them to be viewed as part of the Roman state. He had his sisters added to the ritualized formula used when consuls introduced motions in the Senate, because Caligula wanted his sisters to be on constant public display. These three women were given honors, rights, and freedom unlike any other women in Rome, and their names were suddenly very, very public. Caligula also gave his sisters a lot of the same rights as Vestal Virgins, and I think it's worth pausing for a minute to talk about the Vestal Virgins. Emma Southern explains that the Vestal Virgins were the only women in Rome with a formal state role. They were the keepers of the flame of Rome, the flame that symbolically stood for the might and continuity of the Roman people, and they had to make sure the actual flame never went out. Vestal Virgins took a vow of chastity and served in their official capacity for 40 years. After their service, they were free to marry or do whatever they liked. Vestal virgins were given a lictor, which were kind of like secret service bodyguards who walked in front of them in the street to clear a path for them. And, you know, Caligula thought, what's good enough for the Vestal virgins is good enough for my sisters. So he gave his sisters their own lictors. Also, they were allowed to sit in on Senate proceedings, another enormous breach of precedent. Women were never allowed to go into the Senate. Vestal virgins were also free of male guardianship, free to make their own wills and legal decisions. And again, Caligula thought, this sounds like a great thing. I want my sisters to be free to make their own decisions. I don't want them to wind up in a situation where their lives are completely controlled by a perverted man. I mean, 
mean foreshadowing. So he gave them these rights too. Now his sisters had freedom of movement because of special bodyguards that could protect them from assault in the streets, freedom to make their own wills, and freedom to live without male guardianship. And that is an incredible amount of freedom for a woman in ancient Rome. To top it off, Caligula also gave his sisters the best seats at all the games, again in line with the rights of the Vestal Virgins. And finally, Vestal Virgins' bodies were sacrosanct, and touching or harming them meant death. You were not allowed to touch the Vestal Virgins? Do not poke the Vestal Virgins, Jenny. Don't think about it. They'll cut your hands off. Right. You cannot poke the Vestal Virgins. You cannot brush by the Vestal Virgins. You cannot involve the Vestal Virgins in a tickle fight. This will go badly for you. Don't even try it. No, that is not okay. Space and boundaries. Right, boundaries. This was the last right that Caligula bestowed on his sisters. He made it a crime punishable by death to touch or harm them or brush past them or poke them or anything. Don't poke the Vestal Virgins. Far from being at the mercy of more powerful men, his sisters were now untouchable, literally no touching, no brushing by, no jostling, no hip checking. None of that. Stop. So it seemed like the tide was finally turning for the children of Germanicus. And in 37 AD... The same year Caligula became emperor, Agrippina the Younger got pregnant. This was great news. The next generation of the Julian-Claudian dynasty was on its way. There were almost constant games and parties. The world was their oyster. And then Caligula got sick. This happened around six months into his reign. The healthy 25-year-old Caligula became suddenly deathly ill and lapsed into a coma. Everyone around him went into total panic mode. It's very possible that this was a natural illness, but there were also rumors of poison, and this would have been especially traumatic to Caligula's sisters because their father had also died suddenly amidst rumors of poison. And also very young. Yeah, but beyond that, suddenly the throne and the safe, protected position of Caligula's sisters and family was in jeopardy. See, Caligula had an heir problem. He didn't have a natural heir. I feel like anyone having an heir problem in the Julian Claudian dynasty is like just the, the biggest understatement in the world. I think you're not really in the Julio Claudian dynasty if you don't have an heir problem. It's kind of part of the territory. <laughs> Gemellus was his existing heir, but these boys had always been rivals. And while Caligula was sick, before he had lapsed into his fever-induced coma, he made his favorite sister Drusilla his heir. This was unprecedented. The first time ever that a woman was made heir. And it threw everything into confusion because ancient Rome was sexist. The Praetorians wouldn't support a woman. The Senate wouldn't support a woman. And her husband Lepidus had no political standing. He didn't have a great reputation. So nobody would support him in her stead. And this was dangerous. A less than rock solid succession plan could lead to the overthrow of the dynasty, the violent murder of everyone in the family and administration, and a whole new dynasty in control. Or it could lead to the return of the Republic and the empire itself could collapse. Because remember, there had only been two emperors at this point in time. Rome wasn't that far away from its Republican days. Right. Whenever you have any kind of change in leadership like this, these transitions were always, and I think you can say present tense, these transitions are often really dangerous points unless there's a really solid procedure for how you pick your next ruler. Totally. So, for the sake of their own lives, safety, and positions, as well as the empire itself, Caligula's closest advisors took steps to secure the throne should the worst happen. 
The Praetorian prefect Macro and Caligula's father-in-law Solanus, both trusted advisors of the ailing emperor, started the process of prepping Gemellus to take the throne. Antonia may have been involved here as well because she is also the grandmother of Gemellus. They worked closely with the teen while Caligula was on his deathbed to secure the support of the Senate and the Praetorian Guard and make the transition as smooth as possible. When Caligula died, they would be so ready. In fact, they'd be heroes. They'd have saved the empire. But there's a plot twist. Caligula didn't die. He recovered. Caligula woke up from his fever-induced coma and he was pissed. Gone was the mild and temperate ruler. In his place was a mercurial madman with a vicious temper. The ancient sources are all unanimous that Caligula experienced a dramatic personality change after his illness. Suetonius reported that Caligula had epilepsy. And more modern sources have suggested that he might have developed some sort of mental illness in his late 20s. A lot of mental illnesses are diagnosed more often in your mid or late 20s, including bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. But also, he might have had an edemu. He totally had an edema. I don't know why more people don't talk about the ancient vampire that totally took over Caligula. I know. I'm just looking at all these symptoms now and I'm thinking just, oh, edemu, obviously. Yeah, I mean, if you don't know anything about Edemus, first off, go back and listen to our Ancient Vampires episode. But one of the big things they do is they totally change your personality and make you go from being very mild-mannered and very nice to being sort of violent and awful. So what happened to Caligula could have been a pre-existing mental illness that was just showing up now, or it could have been some kind of fever-induced physical problem, or it could have been an edemu. But it's also possible that Caligula just woke up, saw that his advisors were bypassing his choice for heir and putting his boyhood rival on the throne, and had a complete mental break. Given what had happened to his family, the constant betrayals, the murders, and exile, it's not hard to imagine that these events were the straw that broke an already fragile mind. This is pretty much where Caligula goes from being the hope of his generation to the Joffrey Baratheon of our story, because yes, another Game of Thrones metaphor. Caligula started to get rid of the people he felt had betrayed him while he'd been ill. First to die, his cousin Gemellus. Gemellus hadn't really done anything wrong. All he'd done was play his part as heir in waiting, ready to step up should his cousin actually die. But this was enough to seal his fate. Caligula had the poor teen charged with treason for daring to go along with the plan to install him as next emperor. Caligula had a couple of highly trained soldiers, probably Praetorian guards, pay his cousin a visit. These soldiers told Gamellus that Caligula had ordered him to commit suicide. They offered him a sword, but he didn't know how to use it, which is just heartbreaking. So the soldiers had to instruct him in the best way to commit suicide by sword. Gamellus was a fast study. He was just a kid, about 18 years old, and thrown in at the deep end. And now he was paying the ultimate price. Caligula's grandmother, Antonia, was not happy at Gamellus's death. He was also her grandson. Antonia had always been in Caligula's corner, and she'd been a powerful ally. But Caligula 2.0 didn't care what his grandmother thought. According to Suetonius, he told her, quote, Remember that I have the right to do anything to anybody. And this marks a huge change in their relationship. When Caligula had first become emperor, he'd been heaping titles and all kinds of honors onto his grandmother, but now he was reminding her that he was the king and he could do whatever he wanted to whoever he wanted. It was a terrifying assertion of power, and it didn't take long before Caligula got sick of his grandmother's counsel and decided that the old woman had outlived her usefulness. And the ancient sources vary here. Suetonius tells us that Caligula had his grandmother poisoned, while other sources tell us that Caligula ordered his grandmother to commit suicide. Right, so spoiler for Game of Thrones, you guys. 
Isn't this how Elena Tyrell died in Game of Thrones? This is exactly what happens to Elena Tyrell in season seven of Game of Thrones. So spoilers, guys. When the Lannisters defeat her army, Jamie Lannister comes up to her and she's drinking her wine and offers him a cup. And he says no. He's been tasked with returning her to King's Landing as a broken woman to stand before the queen. And she's, you know, confidently sipping on this wine. And she's like, I ain't going back to King's Landing. I'm going out on my terms. And my terms are this big old glass of wine. And that's pretty much exactly how I think Antonia would have gone out. Antonia would have let her grandson believe that he was getting away with having her murdered, while actually she had been planning her own suicide in a spectacular fashion. I totally like to imagine that Antonia poured herself a nice cup of her favorite wine, said a big F you to her grandson, and drank very deeply. So Antonia and Gamelis were dead at this point, and Caligula still had the problem of macro to deal with. Macro had originally been Caligula's ally, but he'd been plotting to elevate Gemellus, and Caligula could not have that. But Macro was a dangerous enemy because he had the Praetorians under his control, and we have a whole two-episode series on the Praetorian Guard. If you didn't have them on your side, you were pretty much toast. So Caligula pulled a sneaky Tiberius-style trick. He decided that the best way to get rid of Macro was to tell Macro that he was getting a promotion. Caligula offered Macro the supreme honor of the governorship of Egypt. Macro was thrilled, at least until he started packing for his trip when Caligula sent soldiers to order him to kill himself. This was a more private affair, no big public execution on the Gemonian steps. Instead, Macro was arrested, returned to his home, and forced to commit suicide, I suspect by sword. And I'm sensing a theme here, Jen, and that theme is forced suicide. Absolutely, and we're not going to stray much more from the theme. After Caligula rid himself of his cousin, his grandmother, and Macro, he set his sights on his father-in-law, Solanus. This was also problematic because Solanus was powerful in the Senate and had been instrumental in showing Caligula the ropes. But Solanus had betrayed him, and there was no room in Caligula's world for people who didn't get with the program and back him 100%. Solanus could see the writing on the wall. With Macro and Gamelus gone, the only option for him was suicide. And when the order came for Solanus, he quietly committed suicide at home. Now that Caligula had cleaned house and was starting to flex his absolute power, things were going to get a lot worse, because Caligula had figured out that he could do any Thing to anybody, and no one was safe, not even his sisters. This is the Caligula episode, and that means we're going to have to talk about the incest. The ancient sources aren't unanimous about everything to do with Caligula's life, but they do agree on one thing. Caligula slept with his sisters and also made them have sex with his male friends and lovers. And modern historians mostly don't buy this. They often make the case that these lurid claims of incest were made after the fact to malign Caligula. They have a point there. These claims were made by his gravest enemies, or after all, the aristocracy. But while we were researching this story, Jen and I, we thought to ourselves, what if the incest actually happened? Let's think about this for a second. What do we actually know about Caligula? Number one, upbringing on the Neverland Ranch where completely abusive sex situations were totally normalized. And number two, he's someone who believes he can do anything to anybody. If we allow ourselves to believe these claims of incest, how does it change the story? Because actually, if it really did happen, it kind of explains a few things. According to the sources, Caligula was sleeping with all three of his sisters, as well as his male friends, including his sister Drusilla's husband and his best friend, Lepidus. 
According to Suetonius, quote, Caligula lived in habitual incest with his sisters, and at a large banquet he placed each of them in turn below him, while his wife reclined above. What this appears to mean is that Caligula was having sex with each of his sisters in turn at this banquet, with his wife sitting right there. I can't. Guys, you can't unhear it, and I'm sorry. But that wasn't all. In addition to sleeping with his sisters, Caligula was also rumored to have forced them to sleep with his friends and male lovers, even going so far as to pimp them out on the Palatine Hill. Because of course Caligula turned the imperial courthouse into a brothel. It wouldn't be a chapter in Roman history without someone turning the imperial court or the Palatine Hill into a brothel. Yeah, who else has done this in history that we've talked about so far? Elagabalus did it. Elagabalus did it. We're going to get to Messalina doing it. This is one of those claims that I think you keep seeing it crop up whenever the ancient sources seem to really not like somebody. Yeah, and it just feels like it's yet another way to make someone a Donatio Memoriae, doesn't it? Because they have no respect for the imperial court or the people or anything else. Right, the most sacred of Roman institutions, all of a sudden it's a brothel. According to Suetonius, quote, his feelings for his other sisters were not marked by the same passion or reverence as he had for Drusilla, but he often prostituted them to his catamites. And catamites are male lovers, and this word is usually used in the ancient sources to refer to adolescent boys who slept with men. And the implication is that these were more effeminate and the receiving participant in, in gay sex, and to call a grown man one in ancient Rome was a deadly insult because toxic masculinity. It's not quite as bad as the Amazons episodes that we just did, but my eyes are going to the back of my head again. Yeah, toxic masculinity comes up a lot. Caligula's favorite sister like we have been saying, was Drusilla. There was already a rumor that these two were a little too close. It started before Caligula went to live with creepy Uncle Tiberius. Her status as favorite is probably why Caligula married her to Lepidus. Caligula called Drusilla his little wife, and she was the only one of his sisters that he did not allow anyone else, besides himself and Lepidus, of course, to sleep with. This would have been just as shocking to the Roman people as it is to us today. But more to the point, what did the poor sisters think? They had been promised an end to the uncertainty and abuse of the recent years, and it turned out that their savior was every bit as evil as their uncle had been. And if they didn't sleep with him, if they didn't do what he commanded, what would happen to them next? Would they be exiled or executed? And with their brother acting more and more paranoid and erratic every day, how far did they have to go to appease him and keep his trust? But here's the thing. As long as Drusilla was alive, Caligula was somewhat manageable. No matter how bad things got, Drusilla seemed to have some sort of hold on her brother as his little wife. Things were, however, getting really bad. And not just for Caligula's sisters. From 37 AD through 38 AD, the first months of Caligula's reign, things had been getting steadily worse for the aristocracy. Caligula had woken up from his coma believing he could trust no one, and that the aristocracy were just as corrupt and awful as Tiberius had always claimed. Caligula's skills as a master manipulator had been honed to a razor-sharp edge during his time with Tiberius, and now he turned those skills against the aristocracy. While he'd been sick, a number of sycophantic senators had begged the gods to spare Caligula and take them instead. Caligula said he'd indeed been spared, so what were they still doing alive? For those who didn't have the good grace to go home immediately and kill themselves, Caligula sent out poison sweets to help them speed up the process. Caligula loved to watch people squirm. 
Another fun thing he did to make the aristocracy suffer was to recruit, quote from Suetonius, respectable married women and freeborn boys from prominent families to serve as sex workers in his imperial brothel. And these were some pretty awful power games he was playing on the senators and ruling classes in Rome. And also, this is a place where he clearly learned this from Tiberius. Mm-hmm. And one of these power games is how he married his second wife, Livia. In either 37 AD or 38 AD, the sources are a little shaky on this date, Caligula attended the wedding of Livia and Piso, two people from highly placed families. He sent word to Piso, who reclined opposite him, don't take liberties with my wife, and at once carried her off from the table, the next day issuing a proclamation that he had got himself a wife in the manner of Romulus and Augustus, and within a few days divorced her. So that last sentence is a reference to the rape of the Sabine women, which is one of Rome's founding myths. In this story, the men who founded Rome, the followers of Remus and Romulus, attacked a neighboring community and kidnapped all their women in order to get themselves wives. Uh, The other part of this sentence has to do with Augustus, who was Caligula's great-grandfather. He did some real shady things, and one of those things was his second wife was married to someone else, um, and I believe pregnant, and Augustus was like, I'm the emperor, you're going to be my wife. And to me, I can see why Caligula wanted to tell the story that way, because it all has to do with that imperial power and his ability to take what he wants and tell people that it's his right because he's the first citizen. He's the emperor. So here's Caligula following in the crappy footsteps of Rome's founding fathers, taking another man's wife as his own on their wedding day without any regard to how Livia felt. And to make matters worse, he decided that when he was done with Livia, she wasn't allowed to remarry, leaving her a powerless woman in the Roman world. And because Caligula had not done enough yet to make this woman's life miserable, he forbade her from going back to Piso on punishment of exile. Livia and Piso, who by all accounts were in love, chanced exile. And these two are going to come back again in our next episode. So at this point, things were really bad. Caligula clearly believed he could do anything to anybody, and he was acting on that belief. But on the 10th of June, 38 AD, in the second year of Caligula's reign, things got a lot worse because Julia Drusilla died in childbirth. She was 21 years old. And Caligula did not take this well. Drusilla was the bright, gentle light in Caligula's life and possibly one of the few people in the world he actually loved. According to Suetonius, Here's how Caligula coped with the death of his beloved sister. Quote, When she died, he appointed a season of public mourning, during which it was a capital offense to laugh, bathe, or dine in company with one's parents, wife, or children. He was so beside himself with grief that suddenly fleeing the city by night and traversing Capania, he went to Syracuse and hurriedly returned from there without cutting his hair or shaving his beard. And he never afterwards took oath about matters of the highest moment, even before the assembly of the people or in the presence of the soldiers, except by the godhead of Drusilla. When Drusilla died, Caligula elevated her to goddesshood. This, plus his erratic behavior and all his proclamations, were highly inappropriate for an emperor. Caligula behaved the way a lovesick husband would after they lost their favorite wife. Drusilla's death didn't just affect Caligula, the Roman public also mourned. Emma Southern mentioned that Caligula and his sisters were kind of like the British royal family of today. The common people were fascinated with them. They felt a real kinship to them. And the death of beautiful and dutiful Drusilla at the age of just 21 would have been a terrible shock to them as well. The nation would have grieved right along with Caligula and his sisters. These three children, the only survivors of a proud family, grieving the death of a woman taken from the world far too young. The optics of it are heartbreaking and visceral. Sadly, it looks like Drusilla's death, rather than bringing the siblings closer together, drove them further apart. 
With Drusilla gone, Caligula now had another heir problem. His current heir was Lepidus, but Caligula wanted to make sure that the line of succession stayed in the family. So in 38 AD, he forced the incredibly well-connected and wealthy Lalia Paulina to divorce her husband and marry him instead so he could get an heir, because Caligula loved to make sure that his marriages pissed people off. And possibly because in Lalia, Caligula found someone who liked to spend money and be as fabulous as he was. Caligula had a taste for the finer things, and his spending would be a cause for great concern for the empire. And Lalia loved to spend her fortune on jewel-encrusted shoes and clothes, and also making sure that everyone could see from a mile away that she was literally rolling in it. So, like, everything that Lalia owned was jewel-encrusted. Yeah, I mean, Lalia is pretty much, like me being mostly magpie, she would be so shiny. Right, Lalia was extremely shiny. This marriage lasted six months and ended when Caligula decided Lalia was infertile because she wasn't pregnant yet. You know, maybe it isn't her, maybe it's him, but this is not how things were thought about in the ancient world. Infertility was always the women's fault. He then forbade Lalia from sleeping with or associating with other men. And Lalia got off lightly this time. She'll be back in the next episode. After this marriage, Caligula decided he was tired of playing games. This time, when he married, he was going to marry someone he knew could produce an heir. Enter Melonia Saisonia. Saisonia was older than Caligula. The ancient sources call her mature, which is ancient world code for old. Isn't mature code for old now? (laughs) Well, I mean, from my point of view... How old is mature? Like, they were marrying girls at 14. How old is she? How old are you, Sonia? She's got to be, like, in her 20s, you know, early 20s. Ancient world women's sell-by date, when is that? Like, 16? You know what? We're also really old. Oh, God. We are decrepit. We're ancient. In the ancient world, we're so beyond our sell-by date, and I'm actually totally fine with that. Me too. Not weeping in a corner over that. I have other things to weep over and they're not my age. <laughs> Especially according to like the ancient world writers. Caesonia already had three daughters by her first husband. She was incredibly well-connected, shrewd, and most importantly for Caligula, fertile. And Caligula was head over heels for her. They began a wild affair. And when they were finally married, Caesonia was about eight months pregnant. The couple would have a baby girl who Caligula would name after his beloved dead sister, Drusilla. So that's what Caligula was up to. But now we go back to Caligula's surviving sisters, Agrippina and Lavilla. Agrippina had given birth to a son with her horrible husband in the early months of Caligula's reign. And in 39 AD, her husband died. This wasn't a great loss. Her husband wasn't a particularly awesome guy, as we've already said. I mean, I don't think anybody was tossing their firstborn out into the street over him dying. I'm pretty sure it was to the Tiber with Domitius as well. Right, to the Tiber with that guy. And I mean, I think what they mean when they say to the Tiber is like, just throw his body in a water and don't give him any burial. Well, not giving someone a proper burial was a big deal back then, but also there were a lot of people who literally did get thrown into the Tiber. This is not like an idle joke. They really meant it. Caligula would now be able to decide who she married next. And Caligula, at this point in time, had definitely started to jump the shark. I mean, I think that happened pretty much immediately after he woke up from his fever. Yeah, he did. He got his water skis on and jumped that shark several times over. So it's not hard to believe that Agrippina, assessing the situation she had just found herself and her infant son pitched into, decided it was time to take matters into her own hands. She joined up with Lavilla and Lepidus, Drusilla's widower, in a plot to overthrow Caligula. 
According to the ancient sources, both Agrippina and Lavilla were sleeping with Lepidus, so Lepidus really got around. He was like the person in the friend group who'd slept with everybody in the friend group. Yeah, literally every surviving member of the family of Germanicus, he's banged. If we believe these salacious rumors. And I'm starting to wonder if this is this generation's Sejanus. <laughs> are, you, are you saying he has a magic dick? Maybe Lepidus had a magic dick. That is a bold claim, Jenny Williamson. This is just a thing that could happen in the ancient world. You know, you're walking by the Gemonian stairs on a sunny day and the wind is just right. And you whisper a prayer to Priapus and there it is. Magic dick. (laughs) (laughs) And then and then you can just sort of let yourself loose and get whatever you want. I mean, the thing about Lepidus that I found really interesting in the in the research is he didn't come from like a massively powerful family. So this relationship he forged with Caligula and then Caligula's sisters, it put him in the succession for the throne of Rome. He did pretty well with his back channel maneuvering. This is a real example of men using sex to get power. And you see women doing that a lot in the ancient world. You don't really associate it with men as much, but we saw Sejanus doing it and now we're seeing Lepidus doing it. It does happen. I find it plausible that Lepidus was sleeping with all these people, just based on my completely uninformed non-historian opinion. (laughs) And that's an ancient history fangirl guarantee. (laughs) We are not informed and not historian. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so it's possible that this alliance between these two sisters and Lepidus started because Caligula was in the habit of sharing his sisters with his close friends, including Lepidus. That's also in the rumors. So maybe initially sleeping with Lepidus was a non-consensual thing for Agrippina and Lavilla. But the ancient sources also mention love letters flying between Lepidus and both sisters. Everybody's writing hand was cramped in the ancient world. So it's also possible that this evolved somehow into genuine relationships. And a lot of sources seem to chalk this plot up as the sisters getting caught up in a love triangle to overthrow an emperor, but without considering why. It's more than possible that the sisters had had it up to here with Caligula's sexual abuse, cruelty, and erratic behavior. And Lepidus, who'd been made heir when Drusilla died, was out of the succession altogether now that Caligula had a wife and baby. So he had a clear motive too. There are allegedly love letters that Lepidus wrote to both Agrippina and Lavilla, but these have been lost to history, which is kind of sad. I would love to read them. And I mean, again, that's if these letters ever existed. It's possible that Lepidus was playing both of them, letting them both think he'd marry them once Caligula was dead and he was emperor. Agrippina would have leapt at being the power behind the throne. That was a role she was born to play. Given what we know about Agrippina, I find it more believable that she was the ringleader here. I do too. Given what we will come to see about Agrippina, this could be very early groundwork that she's laying for how she will operate later on. And also there's Lavilla here. I'm sure Lavilla had had it just right up to the eyeballs with all this crap. She was the youngest of the siblings and had watched as every single member of her family had turned against each other, been sent into exile or forced to commit suicide, and I bet her worldview was extremely dark and her feelings of loyalty were beyond conflicted at this point. So that's the situation with these plotters. And at the same time, while his closest were plotting behind his back, Caligula decided that he was ready to be a conqueror. He suddenly became super keen to follow in his father's footsteps and conquer Germania, and there was just one small problem with that. Germania had already been conquered. 
but the fronts weren't being manned as effectively as they could have been, and Britain was the next frontier, so Caligula decided it was time to travel to the front, impose some discipline, and set things up for an invasion of Britain that would contribute to his glory. He gathered up his entourage, including his sisters and Lepidus, to tour the frontier in Gaul and along the Rhine. Caligula arrived on the Rhine unannounced, without telling anyone he was planning to show up, and that was on purpose. Because Caligula actually knew that the legions were planning to crown a new emperor. And it turns out he was on to his sisters and Lepidus is plotting. Caligula was crazy like a fox in a Spartan shirt. <laughs> I feel like we have to pause and make a public service announcement here. Kids, if you have a shirt fox, tell someone. Please. It's for your own good. Don't keep it to yourself. Tell a trusted adult, a parent, maybe a teacher, someone you trust. Because shirt foxes can kill. I mean, they frequently do kill because foxes are wild animals and should not be in your shirt. <laughs> it's not about being strong. It's about asking for help when you need it. You're in over your head. Get the fox out of your shirt. Exactly. You should not be letting the fox gnaw on your innards. Just tell someone. Call the 1-800-SHIRT-FOX helpline. There are competent volunteers waiting to hear from you. <laughs> the legions were colluding with Lepidus and the sisters to remove Caligula from power. So Caligula exacted revenge on the troops, beheading those who had betrayed him, shaking up the men in the front, and putting in new commanders who would be loyal to him, and beginning to prepare an invasion of Britain. But Caligula's soldiers refused to cross the ocean. Morale wasn't high at that point, and as a punishment, Caligula had them gather up shells to carry back to Rome as the spoils of their victory. Needless to say, the legions were not amused or happy with this turn of events either. While they were in the Rhine, Caligula had Lepidus killed and his body cremated. He ordered his sister Agrippina to carry the ashes of the urn back to Rome with her. And this was a sick mirror image of Agrippina the Elder carrying Germanicus's ashes back to Rome. It had been done to show that like his mother Agrippina was this heroine who came back to Rome with the ashes of her dead husband. The people loved her and this Agrippina, she was coming back in disgrace with the ashes of her co-conspirator lover and fellow plotter and also the romans would have considered him being her brother-in-law this would have been incest the optics would have been real bad and also sickly ironic and once they returned to rome agrippina and the villa were put on trial for their part in the treason plot Suetonius tells us, quote, The rest of his sisters, Caligula, did not love with so great affection as Drusilla, nor honor so highly, but often prostituted them to his favorites, so that he was the readier at the trial of Aemilius Lepidus to condemn them as adulteresses and privy to the conspiracies against him. And he not only made public letters in the handwriting of all of them, procured by fraud and seduction, but also dedicated to Mars the Avenger three swords designed to take his life. And just like that, Everything went horribly wrong for Caligula's sisters. They were both exiled to a different island, and there isn't much detail on how either sister was treated during exile, but we can assume it wasn't kindly. The norm appears to be starvation, beatings, and neglect. Lavilla was exiled to Pandateria, where her own mother and grandmother had died in exile, so this must have made her time on the island particularly hard. She probably believed the island would be her tomb. Yeah, and she was haunted by the ghosts of the women who died there before for crossing an emperor. Agrippina was sent to Poncho, where her brother Nero had been forced to commit suicide. She also had to give her son over to the care of her husband's sister, Domitia Lepida. And to say that Agrippina and Domitia didn't like each other is 
the understatement of this podcast. Domitia had been involved in that court case where she'd been accused of sleeping with Agrippina's now dead husband, who, let us all remind you, was Lepida's brother. These charges may have been trumped up, but there was a vicious rivalry between these two women. The heartache and pain Agrippina must have felt when she kissed her infant son goodbye, not sure if she'd ever see the boy again must have been immense. And her despair at having to allow a woman she hated to raise her beloved son must have fueled her with the determination to survive her exile at all costs. Suetonius tells us that, quote, after banishing his sisters, Caligula made the threat that he not only had islands, but swords as well. They'd gotten off easy with exile, and the next time they pissed him off, he wouldn't be so nice. Now that his sisters were out of the picture, no one in Rome was safe. Caligula suffered from headaches that pained him, especially at night, and he was constantly convinced that the aristocracy were out to overthrow him. He also had horrible insomnia and used to wander the halls talking to statues because he believed that no mortals were equal to him and worthy of confiding in. And these weren't just statues of, like, randos. They were statues of Olympian gods and goddesses, including his uncle Augustus. So Caligula restored the treason trials with an epic flourish, and the ruling classes found out that he hadn't actually burned Tiberius's records after all. He'd been hanging onto them just in case. Caligula decreed that slaves would now be allowed to testify in open court against their masters should they overhear their masters committing treason against the emperor. And similar to Tiberius's reign, treason here could be something as simple as saying you didn't agree with Caligula's tax plan, didn't like his toga, didn't like the way he parted his hair. So now no member of the aristocracy was safe to speak their minds even in their own home. The atmosphere of paranoia here would have been really extreme. Every member of the aristocracy, every member of the Senate would have basically been in surveillance in their own home and there would have probably been rewards and incentives for slaves to call out their masters for treason, wouldn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that I find really interesting about this point in Caligula's reign is like the paranoia coming from the emperor is now spilling down into everyone else in, in all of Rome. It didn't stop with him. He took that sort of madness and it spilled out into the streets. I also think it wouldn't just have been the aristocracy who would have been paranoid either because it wasn't just the aristocracy who owned slaves. I mean, you could be like a moderately successful shopkeeper or something and have a slave. It would have been paranoia at every level of society. Absolutely. You could be anyone. The types of treason we're talking about, as we've said a few times, we're not talking like I'm going to sell state secrets. These are things like, yeah, that Caligula is going bald, isn't he? Right. Or, oh, his last speech wasn't as good as his other speeches. Or those games weren't as great as the games from last year. Like anything even slightly negative about the Roman state or about Caligula that someone in your household could have picked up and used as fodder. So Caligula was also prone to extravagance. When he returned from his time with allegiance, he wanted a triumph, but the Senate didn't want to give him one. So he decided to take one. Suetonius tells us, quote, He devised a novel and unheard of kind of pageant, for he bridged the Gulf of Baie, a distance of about 3,600 paces, by bringing together merchant ships from all sides and anchoring them in a double line. Afterwards, a mound of earth was heaped upon them and fashioned in the manner of the Appian Way. Over this bridge, he rode back and forth for two successive days. The first day on a caparisoned horse, himself resplendent in a crown of oak leaves, a buckler, a sword, and a cloak of cloth of gold. On the second, in the dress of a charioteer in a car drawn by a pair of famous horses, carrying before him a boy named Darius, one of the hostages from Parthia, and attended by the entire Praetorian Guard and a company of his friends in Gallic chariots. This is just super excessive. I imagine if you lived in this area and you had a view of the Gulf of Baie, <laughs> you'd just be looking out your window and going, oh, he's still doing it. But that's 
absolutely why he did it. The Gulf of Baye was where the really rich Romans lived at this point in time. So he was just flexing his muscles to be like, yeah, I built a bridge from one side to the other. I am Caligula. Hear me roar. He's still, oh, it's the second. Yep, it's it's sunset. He's still going back and forth. Oh my God. Like, is he not tired? I bet he had some amazing like Beyonce style outfits. Caligula was known for his fashion. I bet every time he rode across, he had like a costume change. It would have been a big spectacle. Going on with this quote, I know that many have supposed that Caligula devised this kind of bridge in rivalry of Xerxes, who excited no little admiration by bridging the much narrower Hellespont. Others, that it was to inspire fear in Germany and Britain, on which he had designs, by the fame of some stupendous work. But when I was a boy, I used to hear my grandfather say that the reason for the work, as revealed by the emperor's confidential courtiers, was that Thrasyllus the astrologer had declared to Tiberius, when he was worried about his successor and inclined toward his natural grandson, that Caligula had no more chance of becoming emperor than of riding about over the Gulf of Baye with horses. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine just deciding, like, I'm just going to do this to prove to you that I'm emperor? I mean, he already was emperor, though. Is this really necessary? Like, is this is this not just a tad bit after the fact? This is why he was so perfectly matched for Lalia, who was the beautiful jewel-encrusted woman that he was married to. He was all about the showmanship and spectacle, and this would have delighted him to no end. Caligula was telling the world to look out. He had defied the odds. He was emperor, and he would do whatever he liked. And to humiliate the senators even further, Caligula decided to make his favorite horse, Incantatus, a consul. But eventually, Caligula picked on the wrong person. And this person, Kyria, who was part of Caligula's Praetorian Guard, became the ringleader of an assassination plot that actually succeeded. Kyria had served as a centurion under Germanicus and was probably about the age Caligula's dad would have been if he had lived. According to Suetonius, Caligula used to mock Kyria's high-pitched voice and, quote, taunt Kyria with voluptuousness and effeminacy by every form of insult. When he asked for the watchword, uh, this was an ancient ritual, the Praetorian Guard getting a watchword from the Emperor whenever the Guard changed, Caligula would give him Priapus or Venus, and when Kyria had the occasion to thank him for anything, Caligula would hold out his hand to kiss, forming and moving it in an obscene fashion. Kyria was a battle-hardened man who pretty much had to put up with this pampered emperor's complete nonsense. And you have to remember that Kyria was a member of the Praetorian Guard, which still loved and honored the family of Germanicus. He had served personally with Caligula's dad and no doubt felt intensely loyal to this family. And it was this that broke Kyria's loyalty. It wasn't the horrible acts of abuse that Caligula inflicted against women or other men, not the treason trials or any of the other atrocities. No, it was being called effeminate that made Kyria say just enough is enough and i mean (laughs) toxic masculinity saves the day (laughs) i didn't think we'd ever say that in this podcast but maybe (laughs) that appears to be what's actually happening caligula much like his father was a believer in signs importance he'd had his fortune told and he'd been warned to beware cassius because cassius meant to do him harm but cassius is a pretty common name in ancient rome like marcus or wait drusus of the last episode where we had like 17 drususes drusus i (laughs) drusus intends to do you harm that's like half the population At one point, Caligula thought that this referred to Cassius Longinus, Drusilla's first husband, the guy she was so unhappy with. Caligula had this guy executed, but clearly Caligula had never bothered to find out the first names of his guards because Kyria's first name was also Cassius. Oh, 
<laughs> I know, surprise! <laughs> so Kyria set about plotting Caligula's assassination, drawing in other members of the Praetorian Guard and aristocrats who had been victimized, and he didn't have to go far to find co-conspirators. It went down in late January 41 AD, during a day of plays and games to honor the Emperor Augustus. Suetonius described the scene of Caligula's assassination, quote, In the covered passage through which he had to pass, some boys of good birth who had been summoned from Asia to appear on the stage were rehearsing their parts, and Caligula stopped to watch and encourage them. The tribune Cornelius, another conspirator, asked for the watchword. When Caligula gave him Jupiter, he cried, so be it. As Caligula looked around, Sabinus split his jawbone with a blow of his sword. As he lay upon the ground with his writhing limbs, called out that he still lived, the others dispatched him with thirty wounds. Some even thrust their swords through his privates. At the beginning of this disturbance, his bearers ran to his aid with their poles, and presently the Germans of his bodyguard slew several of his assassins, as well as some inoffensive senators. You do not want to be a bystander during this occurrence. You don't want to be an inoffensive senator, guys. If you're going to be a senator, be an offensive one. Be in on the plot or don't be in the hallway. Right. <laughs> and just like that, the reign of Caligula was over. He had ruled for nearly four years. He was 29 years old. With Caligula dead, the empire stood on a knife's edge. Things in Rome were about to get wild. And in the distance, two ships made their way to two remote islands, ready to greet Agrippina and Lavilla with news. Their exile was over. A new chapter was about to start. So that's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks with a special Roman seasonal holiday-themed episode, and then we'll get back to the story of the family of Germanicus. But before you go, we've got a few exciting things to tell you. First, we're super excited to say that all Ancient History Fangirl listeners are entitled to a 20% discount at Ancient Impressions. We love Ancient Impressions. They make excellent history and mythology-themed merch. I love their Ancient Greek monster map. Yeah, I totally see why you would love that. I have a t-shirt from them that says disapproving Caracalla disapproves. Would Caracalla disapprove of that design? He would. He would strongly disapprove of this t-shirt. <laughs> Yeah, but we approve. So if you're stuck for gifts for your history and mythology-loving friends and family this holiday season, make sure you visit Ancient Impressions at ancient-impressions.com. Use the code AHFP20 at checkout and you'll get 20% off. Our second announcement is that now we have a Patreon. Yay! I, this is super exciting. Some of you mentioned that you'd love to help support the podcast on a more monthly basis, and we heard you. We love bringing you this podcast, but we could definitely use some help. So if you're able to chip in a few dollars, then make sure you visit our Patreon page, which is Patreon slash Ancient History Fangirl, and there will be a link in our website by the time this episode goes up, and donate. We also have some great rewards, including movie nights, where we we get to virtually meet up and watch and discuss a historical or mythological movie and provide extremely dubious and historically inaccurate commentary and a chance to vote on which topics we cover in future seasons. So join the fun and give to our Patreon. If you're on social media, then make sure you follow us on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan and Facebook and Instagram at Ancient History Fangirl. And, you know, say hi. We love chatting to you on social media. And visit our website to get the show notes. The show notes are where it's all happening. So make sure you visit ancienthistoryfangirl.com to be in the know. We'll see you in two weeks' time for a special holiday-themed episode. We'll be back in early January with the conclusion to our ancient world Stark Family Saga.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.